Well, we just recently finished in our studies together through the Apostle John's epistles. We went through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what I'd like to do is just kind of finishing up these short epistles right at the end of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. And it just happens to be coincidence that my grandson's name is Jude. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Jude. See how the Lord works? <laughs> and we'll be looking at this short letter from Jude. Jude is not mentioned or listed as one of the apostles. However, uh, he was clearly a leader and a minister in the early church and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this short letter to the churches of his time. And we'll just be looking at verses one through four today. Uh, and I've entitled today's message, Contend Earnestly for the Faith. Contend Earnestly for the Faith. Join me, if you will, one more time. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us from this text this morning. Lord, we, we come to you now and we ask you to speak to us from your word. We want to open our hearts, we want to open our ears, we want to give full attention now to these, these truths that we believe you have given to us. Lord, I pray for your grace, Lord, for you to help me articulate those things that you want spoken to your people today. And I pray that you would give them the ears to hear and that you would be glorified in it all. We ask for these things once again in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We'll look at these four verses, kind of breaking it up in two sections. The first two verses, Jude gives us his greeting, and we'll take a look at who the author is, who he's writing to, and, and some of his heart for the people he writes to. And then verses three and four, he'll tell us the reason he feels compelled to write. We'll find out the purpose of the letter. Look with me now, verses one and two, let's consider Jude's greeting. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He introduces himself as Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, as it turns out, Jude in the Greek is actually Judas, and not Judas Iscariot, obviously here. Maybe that's why he's saying, by the way, I'm the brother of James, not Judas the traitor who would be long gone by the time this letter was written. But Judas was a popular name during that time, and so Jude gives a little specific about which Jude or Judas he is. And we see that he is the brother of James, and that's what I want to talk about first. He also says that he is the bondservant of Jesus Christ, and we'll expound that a little bit after we talk about this Jude, the brother of James. We believe that this is the James that's being referenced here uh, would have been well known in the early church. He was the lead minister at the church in Jerusalem. As you read through the book of Acts, you see that James was kind of the, the leader there that God had placed over the church in Jerusalem. Many other churches were being planted through Paul's missionary efforts, but back in Jerusalem, there was still a central church, and James 
was the leader of that church. We see him in the book of Acts stepping up and, and you know, having God-given authority and leadership. So this Judas, this Jude, he's the brother of this James. But this James is also the, the writer of the book of James. We know that in the New Testament. But something else about James is he is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit was the father, Mary was the mother. But the Bible tells us that Mary went on to have additional children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They would be half-brothers and half-sisters, same mother, different father. So if James was the half-brother of Jesus, then of course, Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. We see this through the scriptures that in the, in the beginning work of Jesus's ministry, his brothers were not believers. His brothers kind of grew up with Jesus. You can imagine what that would have been like, right? You can hear that already as Jesus being the elder brother. Why don't you clean your room like Jesus does? Why don't you take the trash out like Jesus does, right? You can imagine that would be maybe a hard shadow to live in if Jesus was your older brother. Of course, he was perfect. It had to be a blessing in many ways too. But they saw him just as a sibling in the family. Mary, Joseph, they knew there was something much more special. But the brothers growing up, the sisters growing up, and the scripture lets us know that when Jesus began to launch out into his ministry... The, the siblings didn't really believe in him. They didn't believe that he was the son of God, the Messiah. Come on, Jesus, come back home. You're just our brother. Come back home. Quit, give, give up on this Messiah complex that you have. And now you're out, you know, preaching and teaching and all these multitudes are following you. In fact, in the book of Matthew, chapter, you don't need to turn, but in Matthew 13, when people were saying, you know, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So Judas was known just to be one of the brothers of Jesus. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that his brothers did not believe in him as he began to launch out in his ministry. In fact, they thought maybe he was a little off. It says in Mark 3.21, when his own people heard about this, that he was out ministering and all the crowds pressing in on him, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Somebody better go get Jesus. He's really getting carried away. And uh, time to bring him home and get back into the family business here in Nazareth. So that was kind of the way that his family saw him, specifically his brothers. But the scripture also tells us that they became believers. James had a personal uh, visitation from Jesus after the resurrection. The Bible says Jesus appeared to his brother James. I imagine that would cinch the deal on faith, right? And once you see the resurrection, that would change everything. And so their brothers eventually do come to faith. James becomes this leader in the church of Jerusalem. And Jude becomes this leader in the church. And he writes now this, this letter. It is interesting to me that Jude, in writing the letter, introducing himself, Yes, I'm the brother of James, but my relationship with Jesus, no, I'm not his brother, I'm his bondservant. 
There's an expression of humility that I see coming through Jude. Something real has changed. Yeah, he was just my big brother, but I don't see him that way anymore. He's not just my big brother. He's my savior. He's my master. He'd come to true faith in Jesus Christ. This is an important distinction for all who come to faith. Jesus is more than just the man, the teacher, the great leader. Oh, the great example of humility. Oh, someone so loving, so thoughtful. He is all of that, but he is also the Lord. And for us to come into relationship with him, we recognize that we become his servants. We don't, come, we don't invite Jesus to come be kind of co-captain in our life or our spiritual help and kind of along for our, the ride of our life. No, our life becomes his. Do you understand the transaction of faith? You were lost and dead in sin. Your life was under the wrath of God. You were separated from God. You were, born, you were in sin and in bondage. You have been purchased out of that bondage by the very blood of Jesus Christ and you have been brought into this new family, this new relationship. You've been redeemed and you now have a new master. It's no longer sin and self. It's Jesus Christ. You belong to him. I belong to him. How do you see your life? It's worth asking that question today. Take a little self-test. You know, we see this bondservant. Paul said he was a bondservant. Timothy was a bondservant. Peter was a bondservant. Those that became followers and disciples of Christ, they saw themselves as bondservants. My life is his. He owns me. He directs me. He leads me. I'm here to serve him. That's why I live. To serve Jesus, my master. Is that how you and I see Jesus? I have to tell you, just in that title, my heart is challenged. Jesus, I, I say you're my master, but quite often you're my, you're my co-master. I have, a, I have plans that I want you to come and help me fulfill. Oh, and then maybe I, should help, maybe I should fulfill some that you have too. We'll work this out, Lord. We'll kind of negotiate but no, that's not the relationship that we see in the New Testament. We see that we are bondservants. Paul said this in Galatians 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. My old man, who I used to be, that man's dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jude saw himself. He knew who he was in the flesh. He was the half-brother of Jesus. But the life he was living now, continuing in the flesh, was the bondservant of Jesus Christ. It kind of ties in with who he wrote the letter to, as if Jude would say, look, not only am I his bondservant, but so are you. Look what he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, that means set apart unto God and preserved in Jesus Christ. This is a letter written to believers. This is a, a, a letter written to those who share the Christian faith in Christ. 
And he identifies what that looks like. First of all, you're called and sanctified by the Father. God has called you out of your old life. God has called me out of darkness. God has called me to something completely different. I did not invite Jesus to my life. Rather, he has called me out of my life into his life. Consider what Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a Christian today, you have to see yourself as a new creature in Christ, a new creature. You've been a, a new creation. You've been born again. It's not Jesus coming to your life. It's your life being set aside, being called to the new life of Jesus Christ. Called, sanctified. That means set apart. Listen, God has something for you. You have been set apart to be useful to him. God has specific plan and purpose designed for you. You're no longer just that common man, common woman living your life. No, you're special to him. He set you apart for his use, for his glory. And that's where we want to find our lives is in that, that setting of what he has for me, for you. Preserved in Jesus the Son. I like that. Preserved in Jesus. I'm so thankful that he's the one that's preserving me. He's the one that's keeping me, guarding me, protecting me. I'm his. The Bible talks about our lives being now hidden in Christ. I'm not my own man anymore. I'm now his property. And that's the place of safety, by the way, is in Christ. That's the place where, where our sins are forgiven. That's the place where we're righteous and bold before God. It's in Christ. We don't come waltzing into the presence of God in our own merit, on our own good deeds. No, we come in Christ. That's where we are preserved in him, our relationship with him, which guarantees all the blessings, all the promises of salvation, both in this life and for all eternity. He's the one preserving that. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you had not, there was, you know, you had nothing that you could make to get saved, nothing you offered to get saved. And guess what? There's nothing you can do to keep saved. He preserves. He keeps. You keep yourself in Christ and you're in that place. We do know that John said that, or Jesus said through the gospel of John, you need to abide in me. We do need to remain in that relationship. There is a living connection with Christ. To, to break off from the vine and the branch is to wither and to die. To stay abiding is to be fruitful and blessed and preserved. And we see Jude's prayer, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We see this as a common greeting often in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in many letters, grace and peace to you. Interesting, Jude decides to, to highlight mercy and peace. Mercy and grace are very connected, are they not? I mean, mercy is the grace of God. And the grace of God is an expression of his mercy. 
But Jude seems to highlight mercy here. I wonder, I wonder if Jude, you know, thinking back on the years that he rejected his own brother as the Messiah, the years that maybe he even mocked him or thought, oh, that crazy Jesus, that crazy brother of mine. But now that he's come to faith, now that he's come to believe, I wonder if he has a special appreciation for the mercy. Wow, Jesus forgave me. Isn't that good? I, I, I find that's comforting for me. Maybe some of you were mockers. Maybe some of you were doubters. Maybe some of you were haters. But now you've come to faith in Christ. Oh, and the mercy. The mercy that gives you peace with God. Peace with God, peace of God living in your heart and love. It's a relationship that grows and is nurtured by love. And I like what Jude says. He doesn't say, may these things be added to you. He says, may these things be multiplied to you. You see, God is rich in mercy. God is abundant in loving kindness. He is the Prince of Peace. God has these things that we long for, these things that we need. Don't we need mercy? Don't we need peace? Don't we need love? God has all of that in lavished abundance. May it be multiplied to you, Jude says. No doubt because he has, him and his own heart had received that. So that's, that's the greeting. That's who this is from. This is who it's to. It's to believers. Let's consider now, why is he writing? Why does he pick up the pen to put these thoughts to paper for us? Look with me, verses 3 and 4. Let's consider the purpose. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our, of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting here. Jude says, guys, I originally sat down to write to you just a letter concerning our common salvation. Not common in the sense that it's just ordinary and everyday, but common in the sense that it belongs to us all. We have all come to one faith. We have all come to one truth, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's common in that all of us have found this one way in relationship with God. There are not multiple ways to come to God. There are not multiple ways by which men can be saved. There is but one way that God has established, and that is through his son. John, uh, Jude says, I wanted to write uh, just about our common faith. I just wanted to encourage you in salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you something else. Now, we know that it's the Holy Spirit inspiring this letter. I have no doubt that Jude had prayed and thought about this letter long before he sat down to write, and I'm sure he believed that writing about salvation was going to be inspired of the Holy Spirit. And yet, in the moment that he begins to kind of prepare, the Holy Spirit redirects him. And I like that. I, I like that Jude really is a bondservant. He really is being led by the Lord. 
I'm sorry, Lord, I I can't write that letter. I've already determined in my heart the letter I want to write, and that's the one I'm going to write. No, Lord, the Lord is able to redirect him. And I think that's a common trait for all believers. The Lord often redirects our lives. How many of you found that out? You had plans. Oh, they were such good plans, weren't they? You knew they were just baked in heaven and sent down, and then you began to go out to do what you thought for sure must have been the Lord's will, only to find out, uh uh-uh, you're going somewhere else. You thought, I always thought I was going here for this. Turns out I'm here for a completely different reason. And this is the way the Lord sometimes works in our lives. You know, he doesn't give you the whole story from the beginning, does he? He just says, go. Paul, when he went out from... uh, the the church there in Antioch on his second missionary journey, he thought, well, let's go north. We haven't been there, and I'm sure he felt compelled by the Lord to go there, but it says the Holy Spirit forbid him. Well, let's go a little farther, a little farther west, and then we'll go north up into Bithynia. No, we weren't permitted to go there. He kind of had to bounce through a few closed doors before finally the Lord opened the door for him to sail over to the, you know, the continent of Europe, Greece, and planted those churches over there, Philippi, Colossians, and so forth. So we see that the Lord redirects, and that's important for bondservants, to be flexible, to be directable by the Holy Spirit, not launching out on our plans, but allowing God to shape our plans. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are, the, what God's planned is different than what you have planned. There may be some things that will look familiar, but some of it will be different. You know, we just dedicated this young grace. Boy, 10 years later, boom, here we go. We got another child in the family, right? God had a different plan. But God's plans are good. God's plans are are true. And if we're led by the Spirit, we discover these things as God leads us. But he tells us what the new theme of this letter is going to be. It's going to be contending earnestly for the faith. That's what I want to talk about here, just finishing out our time. What does he mean by contending for the faith? When he says the faith, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Christian faith, the gospel, the truth that has been handed down, he says, once and for all. In other words, the truth isn't changing. The message isn't changing. The gospel's not evolving. God has given us this truth through Jesus Christ, through the apostles, handed on to you and me through the written word of the New Testament. That's the faith, this body of doctrine and truth concerning Jesus Christ. This is what we must contend for. We must contend for uh, any competing truths that might try to shake us or kind of modify or dilute our understanding of the truth any strange doctrines, any uh, late edition doctrines. I mean, we see that even in the, in the world today. There are cults that have new revelation that's come down. Well, Jude says, no, this was a once and for all. Once and for all, God has handed to us the faith, the Christian faith. And the call to you and I is to contend earnestly for it. What does that mean? What's that look like? I I offer just a few thoughts. I I, I think that um, it means that, first of all, you need to know the faith. How can I contend for the faith unless I know it? I've got to read the word. 
I've got to be in the scriptures. I've got to attend a Bible teaching church. I have a recommendation for you. I'm glad you're here. Bible teaching church. I I hope that you're in one. All right, it's getting connected to what the faith is, what that truth is. You need to know the truth. You need to live the truth, live the faith. A devotion life, a changed life, a life that's in connection with the body of Christ. Living your life as a Christian, this is how you contend for the faith. You demonstrate through your living, through your devotion life, through your commitment that you are truly born again. That's how the truth of this faith manifests in our generation. It's seen through the life of the believers. You and I, we're contending as we live for Christ. We become a witness to the faith. We share the faith. We tell the world of Jesus. We talk about it. We know it. We live it. We witness it. And this truth, this gospel, oh, church, we are living in desperate times. We are living in times where this is, the, this is the message that every soul needs in every dark corner. We need to be contending earnestly for this faith. This faith that says, comes to us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his, own, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the faith we're contending for. The witness of the gospel. It's not going to be found in a political solution. The dilemma of mankind, his heart, his brokenness. It's not going to be found in some military solution. It's not going to be found in any kind of self-help or some religious kind of activity. The answer to man's dilemma is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dilemma is sin. The dilemma is rebellion against God. And we are under his wrath. We live in a fallen world. You see it every day, everywhere. Now, I'm not saying that these other things are of no value or of not important or significant, but they are not the answers. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men can be saved by by this name alone, and you know this truth. How can you contend for it? You've got to live it. You've got to be that person wherever you are. It's not a time for game. It's not a time for compromise. It's not a time for half in, half out, lukewarm, oh well, bumping along. It's a time to contend how, he says, earnestly for the faith. That's with all your heart. That's with everything you've got. Amen. Why is it so important in Jude's letter? Something is going on. And he says, you've got to rise up and stand for truth, stand up for the faith, contend for it. Because he he tells us why in verse four, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's stirring in Jude's heart by the Holy Spirit. 
You've got to contend for true Christianity, what, it, what the faith really is, because there are perverted messengers and men creeping into the church. It says here that they, they've taken the, the grace of God, turned it into lewdness. I like what the ESV, it says they have perverted the grace of God into sensuality. The NIV, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. What was happening? What, what were these men that were creeping in? It says that they creep in, they come in subtly. These things don't, the, people that, that have these strange doctrines, you know, they don't wear billboards. They come in and they just subtly kind of say, hey, you know what? It's all under grace. Oh man, come on, just enjoy the freedom. There's nothing, hey, it's all under grace. They're perverting the grace. They're turning grace into lewdness, opportunity to live sinfully. And we thank God for grace. Oh, without grace, we're done. It's all by grace. It's all, we've, we've, we can't earn or work any favor before God. It's all by grace. But what's the purpose of that grace? To give license for continued sin? Or to give you the power and grace to come out of that life of sin and to begin to live a changed life before him? Not perfect, but changed and changing. And so this grace of God, Jude says, they're perverting it. Men are coming in and they're, they're twisting its meaning and they're using it to actually become an opportunity for sinful living, lewdness, licentiousness, no boundaries, do what you want. It's all under grace. Now, I thank God for grace. And I thank God there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But don't twist it. Don't twist that beautiful thing called grace into license to be carnal. Consider with me, and we're closing here, just a few verses from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul covered this same topic in some of his letters, specifically in Romans. You know, he talks so much about the grace of God. Paul really expounds the grace, the mercy, the abundance of God's love and compassion for us. But then he also balances it. He warns, okay, as wonderful as this and true as this is, don't twist it. Don't get this mixed up in your thinking. I'm in Romans. I'll have some of this for you on the overhead. The last part of chapter 5, in verse 20, he says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Don't you love that verse? When you come to the Lord, yeah, but you don't know, Pastor, I'm a big-time sinner. Yeah, well, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. But then Paul goes on. He says in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since God's got so much grace, let's just keep sinning so we can get more of that grace. What does he say? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't you know that's the old man? Don't you know that's, that guy's dead? Don't you remember when you were baptized, you went through a burial, boom, down, bury that guy and come up in a new life? You don't go back and resurrect this old character and, well, grace will cover me. That's not the purpose of, gra purpose of grace. Paul is setting the, the record straight. 
He goes on later in the chapter. I have verses 12 through 14. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Stop giving place. Stop presenting yourself. Stop showing up for duty when it comes to sin. Rather, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, grace has set you free from that condemnation of the law. Mercy, grace has set you free from that bondage so that you may now live the new life empowered by the Spirit, setting free from the things of sin. Sin no longer your master. Sin no longer, you know, your, your, your bondage. God has broken that and you are now able to live free because you're under grace and not under law. Well, he asks the question again, be careful. Don't twist it. Don't pervert it. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Just because you're not under law doesn't mean that you should now sin more because you're under grace. No. He said, look, if you keep presenting yourself there to sin, you're going to end up slave again. You're going to end up under the same bondage that you were once in. You've got to start presenting yourself now to God. You've got to start now presenting yourself to the life in the spirit. God wants us to walk in victory. Now there is grace. Oh, thank God. There is mercy. For the heart that's walking after the Lord, we still stumble, don't we? I'll confess, I do. I regret it. But when I do, I'm so thankful that if I will confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me. When I sin, I don't say, oh, well, it's under grace. I say, God, forgive me. And by your grace, lead me out of this thing. I want to be changed. I want to be free from sin. Grace has come to set us free from sin, not freedom to continue in sin. And so Jude brings this out. He says, you listen, true believers. Listen, you bond servants, you called, sanctified, set apart for God. You need to contend earnestly for the faith because there, there are some strange doctrines creeping in, strange ideas about the faith. And you've got to contend against those. Because these guys, these ungodly men, these corrupt teachers and uh, examples, they're turning these things around, they're perverting these things, and they're even denying the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what Titus says about this in my last verse before I close. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, he talks about, well, uh, Paul writing to Titus, he says, they profess to know God, but in works deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You see, that life that just continues to live without any boundaries, without any remorse, without any sense of, of conviction towards sin, you may say 
that you know God. You may say that you know Jesus, but your lifestyle, your action, your conduct is actually denying that. And I think that's what Jude is saying. These guys have gone so far in, in their, you know, sinful living that they're actually denying Christ because they're not representing, they're not contending earnestly for the true faith. So here we get this, here we get this letter. Here we get this letter from Jude, the half-brother, but more importantly, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, written to believers, and he tells us, contend. Contend earnestly for the faith because there's a lot of strange ideas out there. How many of you can say, that's true? That's, amen, that's true today. A lot of different ideas about the faith. How do I contend earnestly? I've got to live for the Lord. I remind you, you're called you're sanctified by God the Father. You're preserved in Jesus Christ. You're a recipient of mercy, peace, and love that has been multiplied and abounds to you. Now contend. Contend earnestly for the faith. Maybe you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus in a personal way. You know about the Lord Jesus kind of the way Jude did. He knew about his brother. He grew up with him. He, but he didn't know him as Savior. He didn't know him as Lord. He didn't know him as the one who died on the cross for his sin and rose from the dead. But when he met that Jesus, his whole life changed. He's not just my brother. He's now my Lord, my master. And maybe you're here today and you know about Jesus, but you need to come to know Jesus in the truth of who he is and what he's done for you and how he loves you. And you're ready to invite him in, not only to cleanse you of your sin, not only to save you from who you were, but to come and be the Lord and master of your life and begin to lead you by his spirit. Maybe you're ready to make that commitment today. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you need to recommit your life. Now think about this with me. Jude's letter, he's talking about outside, corruptive, ungodly men coming in and meddling in the life of the church. And he's saying, hey, contend for the faith. Don't let these guys come in and do that within the body of Christ. But I want to suggest to you that even our own hearts, the Bible says, guard your own heart. You know, I, I, this has been my experience. If I don't guard, I find that there are some corrupt things that can come even into my own life. Maybe you're here today and you need to contend for your own faith. Maybe something has crept into your life, into your Christian practice, something that has become now kind of acceptable, something that, well, you know, I'm under grace and something is deceiving you and you're beginning to, to walk in, in things that you know in the truth. If you were earnestly contending, you, you know, I, I can't allow that in my life. I've got to, I've got, I, that's got to go. I've got to contend earnestly for my own faith. And maybe you're here today and you need to, to set that, that needle back to center with the Lord. Come back to the Lord. And rededicate, recommit your heart, recontend, if you will, for the faith. Not that you've lost faith, not that you've lost salvation, but you're definitely not contending earnestly for the things that you know God's calling you to and has for you. I'd like to pray for you too. 
Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we we thank you today for your word. And we thank you today for the truth of the faith that you have delivered to us once and for all. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving. Thank you for coming into my life. Oh, Jesus, I need you to be not just Savior, but Lord. Oh, help me to really be your bondservant. I want to follow you. I want to obey you because I know you love me and I know that what you have for me is for my best. And as our heads are bowed here today, as I mentioned, if you're here today and you want to receive Christ, or you're here today and you want to rededicate your life to Christ, I want to finish this time in praying for you specifically. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Let me see you where you are and we'll pray. God bless you. Anyone else? The Lord speaking to you over here on far outside on the aisle there. God bless you. On the far aisle there, on the far right, my left. Anyone else today? The Lord speaking to you. You need to contend earnestly right now for the faith. Jesus loves you. God bless you. Amen. Another hand there. Jude's letter is so straightforward. He mixes no words. It's such an urgency in his writing. And that's what I feel today for us just as a church, an urgent appeal from the Lord. Contend earnestly, church. Anyone else here today, just before I pray, God bless you. Amen. In the back, amen. A couple other hands, amen. All right, let me pray. Father, I thank you for these hearts responding to you and to your word. It seems, Lord, that that you redirected Jude to write these things, not only for his generation, but for ours as well. And so our hearts embrace it today for what it truly is, the word of the Lord. And so God, for those responding today, I pray that you would see their heart and hear their cry, that it would be sincere today. Because Lord, you know. And that they would contend earnestly today for the faith. That they would simply say, Jesus, please forgive me and come into my life. I believe that you are my Savior who died on the cross for my sin and who rose from the dead to be my Lord and King. And I want to follow you. Come into my life. Help me. Lead me. Show me the way. I want to be in the faith with all my heart. For those that are rededicating Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for allowing corrupt thoughts or actions kind of slipping in and craftily coming back into our lives, things of compromise, things of accommodating. Oh, we justify, we rationalize, but Lord, slowly we slip away from the faith. We're asking you today to forgive us. And we're asking you today, Lord, 
to, to receive us as we recommit and rededicate our hearts to you now. Holy Spirit, light the fire again. Change us, God. Re, realign us for this faith that you've called us to contend earnestly for. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 